Welcome everybody to episode 9 of We Effed Up. I am Teresa. And I'm Cody. And today we're here to tell you about all of the times in history when we, the royal we, uh, effed up. So what are we talking about today, Cody? Uh, we're talking about something, uh, it's the most recent thing we've talked about, oh. and uh, something that some of the people, some of the listeners uh, have probably been alive for, probably witnessed, uh, the Space Shuttle Challenger disaster. Oh, geez. Here we go. Yeah. Is this like the ninth episode in a row where we talk about something that's really depressing? Yeah, but uh, well, we'll come back to that around the back to that at the end. We're talking about the Challenger disaster. Yes. Okay. And specifically, uh, one point of failure involved where that possibly could have stopped it from happening. Oh, geez. Yeah. Okay. So well, this is lame. Yeah, so a um, little bit of background first on the shuttle program itself. Okay. Uh, U.S. development of a reusable space vehicle began in the late 1950s okay. with the Air Force's Dinosaur Program. Boy. Dinosaur spelled D-Y-N-A hyphen S-O-A-R. Did that hurt your body it did. to read that? It, it, like, physically, like, I read that and I just, like, immediately, like, just started, like, getting a headache. <laughs> Just like, oh, this is painful. They love their acronyms. It's not even an acronym. It's just, it's just, it's just what they called it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Um, but development on various technologies and designs throughout the 1960s led NASA to announce plans for a usable space vehicle in 1968. Okay. So before we even land on the moon, we've already NASA's already said, hey, we're going to have this thing in the future. And I'm sure this is going to be a recurring theme in this episode. It's probably because NASA has a government budget, a.k.a. they have to operate on a shoestring all the time. So they're like, we don't have enough money to just keep building new ones of these. Somebody make a reusable one. Partially, yeah. Um, par- it was partially meant as a way to cheapen costs to, like, low Earth orbit. Yeah. Uh, so, so, yeah, so they don't have to keep building rocket, uh, exp- exp- uh, expendable rockets to, yeah, uh, to do that. for sure. Um, NASA and the Air Force, who helped fund it, because shuttles also used for some military applications. Sure. Um, there's still, like, classified missions that they went on that we don't really know what they did. The moon, fake moon landing. Mm, Everybody knows that well, I mean, that shuttle one. missions. Um, the, the fake moon landing wasn't a shuttle mission? No. Oh, okay. No. Uh, NASA and the Air Force, they decided on a delta wing-shaped orbiter with an external fuel tank by 1971. So, like, the, they had the basic shape of the shuttle uh-huh. done, like, a fixed wing, um, kind of delta wing type of uh, design with an external tank. Like, this was pretty early on in the process. Yeah. Well, basically what it looks like now. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, what addi- the shuttles look like. Yeah. Additional rocket boosters were later added to the design. So, like, the big white rockets that are on the... the on the, uh, attached to the sides of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, the solid rocket boosters. Uh-huh. Uh, and the construction contracts were awarded to three companies. Uh, Rockwell was designated to design the actual orbiter itself, the actual shuttle. Uh, Martin Marietta, the external tank. Uh-huh. And, uh, a company most relevant to what we're going to talk about today, Morton Thiokol, was contracted to develop the solid rocket boosters. Henry Morton Stanley was in one of the episodes. Is this a conspiracy? No. Are we turning into a conspiracy podcast? No. Sounds like we are. We're not. <laughs> Can we become a... Can we? Can we no. do that? <laughs> We're not going to do... We have to... You know what? The if, conspiracy. You, if you want to do, go do that on your own, go for it. We can't do... We have to... The Just conspiracy... So long, you, so long as you don't turn to Alex Jones, that's fine. Conspiracy minisodes? We'll start selling uh, fake health supplements and all that stuff. I myself would blow an O-ring if I became Alex Jones. I can't get not, I cannot get to that level of sustained rage. Yeah, you end up looking like a like a red potato. 
Um, <laughs> Red potato. Seriously, that's what he looks like. Okay. Uh, construction began on the first shuttle, Enterprise, in June 1974 and was completed by September 1976. Okay. And yes, it was named after uh, Starship Enterprise from Star Trek. That makes sense. Yeah. Uh, they were originally going to call it, like, Constitution or something like that, but then Star Trek fans had a letter-writing campaign, and they, know, they <laughs> called it Enterprise. Never underestimate the tenacity of a bunch of Trekkie nerds. Oh, yeah. Especially in the 70s when Star Trek was off. So, yeah. So, like, there was no Trek. So. Wow. Yeah, and, like, when it was unveiled, like, uh, the the entire cast was there to just... They had the whole, they had the whole cast there, except for William Shatner. Well, he's too good for that. Yeah. He was like, I'm, I'm making important movies. Yeah, I don't need to be doing these PR events. I'm, I am a talented thespian. Because William Shatner, ladies and gentlemen, is the best actor in the history of television. So he has far more important things. You can't to even do. say that with a straight face. You couldn't even say that with a straight face. Just pipe down over there. William Shatner is never going to listen to this. So sorry. He won't listen to our He's podcast. He's too busy go actually going into space. <laughs> yeah, and then making, sh- getting a whole bunch, doing a bunch of crappy television shows about it. Excuse me. Crappy? I don't yeah. think so. Yeah, I think anyway, so. Anyway, my man love for William Shatner aside. Enterprise was only a test article, and it never flew in space. It was mm-hmm. just meant to kind of replicate the, uh, the, like, the landing. Yeah. Because uh, they would just release it from the plane, and have it, it would glide down to the runway so they just use it for that okay uh the show columbia began its construction in march 1975 and was delivered to nasa in march of 1979 okay uh, i remember columbia the first very first space shuttle uh, to go into space in january 1979 nasa commissioned a second orbiter rockwell converted an existing test article that they were using for other purposes into challenger uh, delivering it to nasa in july 1982 okay uh, two additional orbiters, Discovery and Atlantis, were delivered in 1983 and 1985, respectively. Okay. I and think then, I remember Discovery and Atlantis actually being used. Yeah, we've seen Discovery. Yeah. Because we saw it at the Smithsonian. Oh, okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, and then a fifth orbiter, Endeavor, began construction, but was halted as NASA wanted to keep the fleet at four orbiters. Okay. It's pretty expensive to make those things, so... Yeah, and operating costs, like, ongoing, like, it's kind of hard to maintain five. Yeah. Uh, the first launch took place on April 12th, 1981. Coincidentally, April 12th, my birthday. So, listeners, if you want to, you know, maybe give me a present, April 12th, just put it out there. Wow. Shelling for birthday presents now. Yeah. We don't stoop- even have a P.O. box yet. I prefer cash. We've stooped so low. <laughs> There's lower I can stoop. <laughs> um, after three more test flights, uh, NASA declared the space shuttle operational, and Challenger's first flight took place in April 1983. Okay. Uh, one design quirk of the shuttle, I mean, it's more of a flaw and less of a quirk, but uh, was that there was not really a way to abort the mission from launch until it reached orbit, or for the crew to abandon the ship in case of a mishap. Um, that seems like a pretty in- intense flaw, just yeah. saying. Yeah, like, if you see, like, any older launches like the Mercury's or Gemini's or Apollo missions... Uh, they were always at the top of the rocket, and you'd always see that little tower coming off the top. Well, not for Gemini's, but like you'd always see the tower coming off the top of it. That's like the launch escape system. And yeah. it, I mean, like even today, like the in Russia, like the Soyuz craft. Yeah, they would then, just like pop off the top uh, and then uh, drift much. to yeah. into the ocean. Hopefully, and the upcoming Artemis, Artemis missions, those are going to have those as well. Yeah, so. there's a reason for that. Yeah, it's the oh shit button, and or, it's not, yeah, it's the oh crap button. Yeah, and it's not like. 
they couldn't do it because, like, Russia, or at least the Soviet Union at the time, in the mid to late 80s, they developed their own space shuttle called Buran. Uh-huh. Uh, it only flew once. Uh-huh. But it actually did have, a, like, a, a system to where, like, all the crew members could escape. Huh. So it's like... It's not an impossible thing to do, NASA. <laughs> they were just like, look, if you're an astronaut, you're going to be like a captain of an old ship. You're going down. Yeah. If the if the ship's going down, you're going down with and, it. And really, you signed up for this. You've got to know there's risk involved. Oh, boy. Yeah. I'm sure that that was a conversation that was had afterwards. Yep. Ugh. Yep. Uh, another thing is that once activated, the solid rocket boosters could not be turned off until their fuel was spent. Dude. Well, it's the way, like, solid rocket feel like liquid. Yeah. You can kind of, like, throttle, like... Sure. You know, how much you want, turn yeah. on or off. Yeah, it's like a carburetor. Yeah. It's solid fuel, you just turn it on at the maximum, and it just goes until it's done. So is that still how it operates? Well, I mean, um... Well, the shuttle doesn't fly anymore, so... Right. So these rocket boosters aren't... Relevant. Yeah, okay. but I mean, if anything was... That's the way anything with solid fuel works. Ah, so okay. it's not just these things, but I see. It's like a candle, but you can't blow it out. Yeah, until once, all of the candles once, spent. or like a like a stick or like a Roman candle, maybe. Oh, like a firework. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. There's no giant bucket of water that you can use to douse an entire space. No <laughs> spaceship. Uh, as the shuttle became a reliable method to get to space, launch frequency became higher. Okay. So they'd launch more often every year. Right. Uh, the mission prior to the, to the Challenger disaster, it only landed it landed ten days beforehand. Wow. It wasn't the Challenger itself, of course, but like it was a different shuttle. But like, yeah, it, it only landed like ten days before. So we were starting to get cocky at this point. Kind like, of. Like we um, had a lot of successful missions, so we're like, and we we've got a bunch of money getting funneled into NASA, so we're like, yes, yeah, we're good at this. Let's do it. Yeah. Well, that kind of leads to my next point. This oh. created pressure on NASA and the contractors to stick to the schedule uh, because any delay would have a knock on effect on other missions. Sure. Like you delay this one, you're gonna push all these other ones back. Yeah. So, um, STS-51L, which was the mission uh-huh. that Challenger was going on, was originally scheduled for July of 1985, but payload setbacks led to a delay until January of 1986. Okay. Uh, and the crew for that um, consisted of Francis Scobie, Michael Smith, Ellison Onizuka, who had previously been the first Asian-American in space. Okay. Uh, Judith Resnick, Ronald McNair, Gregory Jarvis, and Krista McAuliffe, who had been selected from the Teacher in Space program. Yeah. Which, as I understand it, was pretty prestigious. Obviously, only one person was chosen. Yeah. Lots of people entered. Yes. Okay. Um, a, a little note about the Teacher in Space program. I know I've told you this before, but I'll mention it again for the listeners. It was just been part of a NASA out- outreach thing to uh, the... Uh, just a civilian population trying to get more interest in it and they'd actually talked of putting big bird on the space shuttle like actually putting carol spinney and the big bird costume slash puppet like on the shuttle to get kids to like you know interested in it imagine i know that this is going to be kind of a spoiler but i'm sure that the challenger mission is not much of a spoiler for most people imagine a bunch of kids watching big bird get blown up in a spaceship yeah, that would have... Because that's what was going to happen if they didn't put a teacher in there. Imagine, though, Big Bird getting blown up in a spaceship. It would have been real crappy. I mean, obviously what happened in general was pretty crappy, but I think a bunch of kids seeing their childhood puppet hero yeah. 
disintegrate in space would yeah. would have been pretty traumatizing. And to understand this a little bit better, you have to get a little bit more background into how O-rings work. Oh, break it down for me. Let's hear this NASA-level yeah, yeah, engineering, yes, please. Yes, especially from, you know, engineering expert Cody Reynolds. Uh, uh, to our listeners, uh, Cody Reynolds is not an engineering expert. No, 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 no. I'm no Geordie LaForge. Um... Maybe I'll call my NASA friend to be like, Randy, can you just real quick do a tiny little explanation of O-rings for me and we can edit it I had it to in. read so much about this, like, multiple times to really un- even get the most basic grasp of it. <laughs> so you're really proud to share what you know. Slash embarrassed, because I might be completely wrong. Um, so the solid rocket boosters, they provided 85% of the thrust needed to get the shuttle to orbit. Okay. So... The remaining 15% was the actual shuttle main engines, uh-huh. like at the back of the shuttle. Then that's the only time they were used during launch. Yeah. That big whole orange external tank, that's all fuel for those three little rocket engines at the back of the shuttle. Right, right. So, And that is only 15% of the thrust. So that really shows you how powerful these solid rocket boosters are. Yeah, yeah. That's why they use solid fuel in the yes. first place. Yeah. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, they were designed and constructed by Morton Thiokol, a rocket company, which I'm just going to call Thiokol from now on. Okay. That's want to say. Sure. Uh, one of the numerous components of the SRB was the O-ring, which served as a seal in between sections of the booster itself. Uh-huh. And there were primary and secondary O-rings around each joint in the booster for a total of six. Okay. Uh, there had been concerns about the O-rings before the first shuttle even launched, uh, but they had not been considered important enough to delay further. Whew. Okay. Uh, the first problem with an O-ring occurred during the second shuttle flight in November 1981. Uh-huh. So, so it's been a disaster. January 1986. This has been a... Ongoing n- thing. Uh, yeah. Um, after the coldest launch of a shuttle in January 1985 uh, showed erosion of both the primary and secondary O-rings, uh, Thiokol engineers began to work on redesigned joints to correct the issue. Okay. And that launch was at 62 degrees, and that was the coldest. Wow. Yeah, well, because they launched from Florida. Florida, so. right. Um, and by erosion, I mean, like, they're becoming, like, less elastic. Like, like O-rings are supposed to expand and contract sure. to really meet, like, or really, like, to make a good seal. Right. They're becoming static. They're becoming, like less flexible to do that. Yeah, what what ends up happening, at least the O-rings on, like, cars or motorcycles or whatever, is if they get dried out, if they're not, uh, like, either lubricated enough or mm-hmm. if the uh, rubber or material that they're using is dried out, then it stops moving and starts cracking. Yeah. So that's essentially why an O-ring is it's necessary for you to keep them warm and to keep using them. Yeah. Um... And Thiokol, they ordered a redesign in July 1985, but wanted to work through the existing stock before implementing it. So, like, we don't want to waste the stuff we've already built. Well, that stuff is the stuff that is, you know, they're like, the, well, the stuff that's on there is the one that's eroding. These yeah. have been in storage, so yeah. no big deal. Yeah. Yikes. So, uh, leading up to the launch itself, uh, temperature forecasted for launch... Uh, which they projected at 9.38 in the morning on January 28th, 1986, was 26 degrees. Oh, boy. Well below the 53 degrees that Thiokol engineers wanted for a safe launch. Well. Yeah. Uh, There was a conference call between Thiokol and NASA uh, set up the previous evening to discuss the launch. 
uh, and Thiokol engineers led by a man named Alan McDonald expressed fears over a possible O-ring failure. I'll give you a little bit of background into McDonald himself. Um, McDonald, he'd been born in July 1937 in Cody, Wyoming. Mm-hmm. Uh, he had graduated from the University of Utah in 1967 with a master's in engineering. Uh, and he began working at MIT in 1959, you know, before he'd even... So he's uh, a smarty. Yes, uh, before he'd even gotten his uh, master's in engineering. He, and he began working on the Minuteman missile program, of, like the ballistic missiles they put nuclear bombs on. Oh, okay. That would launch it. Oh, sure. Russia or wherever. So he's working on that program. And his work on the Minuteman project led to selection for the SRB program. Okay. And he was concerned that low temperatures would reduce the effectiveness of... The effectiveness of the O-rings. Yeah, of course. Yeah, so he, he was one of the designers who was like, hey, you know, maybe we need to, like, you know, stop these from being used from now before until we can actually fix the problem. Sure, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, why do you think you warm up your car <clears throat> yeah. when it's 26 degrees outside? You don't just, like, turn it on and go off, at least most people, and Unless you probably you're shouldn't. Unless late for work. <laughs> <laughs> Is that you every single day? Do you ever let your car warm up? Uh, Thiokol executives, they backed uh, engineers' concerns and recommended a launch delay until the 53-degree temperature was reached. Yeah. There's Um, a reason why we have engineers to tell you about this stuff. It's not... It's it's called risk mitigation. And in the long run, it saves you money to have risk mitigation and to Mm -hmm. listen to engineers. Like, so when they say something like, hey, it's too cold... Uh, we're worried about this pretty crucial items failure. Mm-hmm. It's too cold. And they're like, meh, that's going to push us back. Well, at this point, we're going to introduce our effer-upper for this episode. Oh, boy. man by the name of Lawrence Malloy. Okay. Uh, he had been born in 1934, uh, and he began at NASA in 1960. Okay. Uh, and he was appointed as the project manager for the SRB program in 1982. So he's been the guy... On the NASA side of things, like uh, running the SRBs for the last uh, uh, 20 ish years. years. For, oh, okay. Yeah, so. Uh, and he had to sign off on every shuttle launch. Okay. Because he's basically the guy now saying, okay, the SRBs are fine. They will function uh, as they are uh, expected to. Okay. So he pushed back against the delay. And this is where he F's up. And he's just putting pressure on these thigh call executives. Even asking them at one point, my God, Thiokol, when do you want me to launch? April? Like, when do you want me to just keep delaying this until your concerns are met? Yeah, yep, that's pretty much it. That's uh, that's the whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, like, you know, he's feeling pressure from his end as well. Like, sure. you need to keep the schedule. Yeah. The schedule needs to be kept. Well, it costs you money to store something. Yeah. So. But, it, but um, so a discussion is held uh, on this conference call without the engineers. And then Thiokol executives reversed their decision and approved the launch. Wow. Wow. So, we don't... I couldn't find anything what was said in this little powwow just between the NASA dudes and the Thiokol execs, but I imagine Lawrence Malloy was probably um, writing them hard to like, hey, no, you need you need to approve this. We need, it, we need, we need this done. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, and Malloy did not forward the con- the uh, concern to the rest of NASA management. He didn't even mention that the Thiokol engineers had concerns about this. Okay, yeah, that's a major F up. Yeah. 
Overnight temperatures on the SRBs measured at 25 degrees on the left one and 8 degrees on the right one. Remember, if I call the engineers wanted 53 degrees. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Ice had even formed on the tower itself, and concerns from Rockwell, the people who actually made the actual order itself, led to a delay of two hours. Okay. (laughs) Two hours. Yeah. Big difference. Yeah. Well, I mean, the sun shining on it at this point is like bright melt. A lot of the ice and a lot of it did melt off. Okay. Um. Challenger lifted off off from the launch pad at 11.38 a.m. Okay. Almost immediately, a smoke plume formed where the O-rings failed on the right SRB. Like, it hadn't even cleared the tower yet. And there were, like, and a lot of this is going back, looking at Mm frame-by-frame footage. It's like they can see now that suddenly they didn't notice, like, right at takeoff. Sure. You're not necessarily looking for it. Plus, there's a lot of smoke happening. Yeah. So, um... This lasted for about three seconds until the gap was plugged by the fuel itself. Oh, boy. Yeah. Uh, Once the shuttle reached uh, what's called Max Q, uh, I'll explain that in a minute, Max Q, 58 seconds in, pressure broke the fuel seal, and a plume of flame erupted from the joint. Uh, Max Q is the point in the launch where, like, there's most atmospheric pressure on the shuttle itself. Okay. So, a combination of speed... Pressure of the atmosphere, like everything that, like they call that point max Q. Okay, so the worst possible moment. Yeah. Okay. Uh, pl- the plume began burning through, or this flame pl- plume that erupted from the joint because the O-ring failed. Mm-hmm. The plume began burning through the external tank itself and the su- and the support strut that held the SRB to the tank. Of course. At seventy three seconds into the flight, the liquid hydrogen tank of the external tank exploded. As the aft SRB began pulling away because the strut had failed. Right. Leading to a larger explosion that destroyed the external tank and the orbiter itself. Wow. And this is what I'm sure everybody has seen of this. Yeah. Uh, the shuttle itself. Yeah. Blowing up. Um, the SRBs continued to run until they were destroyed by remote detonation. Because oh uh, they were God. just running. Now they, had, they still had fuel in them and they were just running in random directions. So they... Well, detonated them. imagine having the foresight to be able to remote detonate two solid mm-hmm. rocket boosters, but not having the foresight to have an emergency escape route. Yeah. And, I mean, at, at this point, would they even have had time to safely escape? Would they have had time to, you know, like, would anybody have been able to understand what was happening? But So, just keeping that in mind, but also... You're going to have a remote detonator, but you're not yeah. going to help your people out. Yeah. Um, the crew cabin itself remained mostly intact after the explosion, and some of the crew were still alive and possibly conscious. Oh my god. That's yeah. even more terrifying. I had no yeah. idea. I thought they were all killed on in- instantly. No. Like, and, and, like, if you zoom in, like, and slow frame, like, you, you can actually see the actual crew cabin itself coming out of the explosion. Yeah. So screwed up. Yeah. Jeez. Okay. Um, it was unknown if the cabin remained pressurized during the free fall, which lasted for about two and a half to three minutes. Uh-huh. Um, any crew that were still alive at this point would have been killed instantly when the cabin hit the ocean surface, as deceleration was estimated at 200 Gs. So they were basically liquefied. 
Yeah, it wasn't pretty. Oh my god. Yeah. Imagine having to be the person to have to go get that. Yeah. Because. Well. You... Uh, yeah, okay. Right. Um. The debris recovery effort began almost immediately and lasted for months. The crew cabin was recovered in March, throughout March and April. Because it was, yeah. yeah. It was exploded. Yeah. It was in pieces. Relevant SRB debris was recovered in April. Okay. So, like, the actual physical remains of the SRB had exploded. Yeah. Uh, The Challenger wreckage that was not... Um, or, well, after the investigation that was coming up was completed, the Challenger wreckage was buried in an unused Cape Canaveral missile silo. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, they definitely didn't want to put that anywhere accessible, I think, to people. Yeah, yeah they, exactly. Because, it, because once the investigation's done, you don't need it anymore. It's less risk of it getting stolen, and you know somebody would try to sell it. Oh, yeah. Definitely. So, um, I mean, there, there are some pieces. I know there's some pieces, that are, like, on display. In at, museums and yeah, stuff. Like, mm-hmm. uh, but, um, but most of it was buried in this missile silo. And like, it's, it's, it's on the Cape Canaveral, I guess now, Space Force Base. Like, so you couldn't even get there if you wanted to. Wow. So. Uh, memorial service was held for the astronauts on January 31st. Uh, Scobie, Smith, and Resnick were buried at Arlington, while others were buried elsewhere. Uh, they have a nice little challenger memorial uh, there at Arlington. I've seen it right next to the Columbia Memorial, unfortunately. Did we see that? No. Oh, okay. I saw it there when I went on a school trip. Oh. God, 18 years ago now. Oh. Uh, President Ronald Reagan ordered a commission to investigate the accident, and the Rogers Commission was formed on February 6th. Okay. Uh, it was headed by former Secretary of State William Rogers and included Chuck Yeager, the first person to break the sound barrier. Yeah. Neil Armstrong, of first course. person on the moon. Sally Ride, who yeah. was the first American woman in space. And Nobel winning physicist Richard Feynman. Mm-hmm. Actually, I don't know if it's Feynman or Feynman. Maybe Feynman. I don't know. I was calling Feynman. Um, and he was an interesting character. Um he was kind of put, uh, along with the other three I mentioned, um, he was kind of put on that commission, just, like, known people, like, mm-hmm. people that the public knew sure. um, were on the commission. There were a bunch of, like, technical people on it, too, mm-hmm. uh, but those are the most recognizable names on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Feynman, a scientist, a physicist, a physicist uh, preferred his own method of investigation and class, clashed a lot with Rogers, the commission chairman, who was mm-hmm. a politician. Yeah, right. Of so, course. do I really need to elaborate on that uh Feynman he was led to investigate the O-rings after careful questioning by commission member General Donald Coutinho and the leaking leaking of a secret report by Sally Ride whoops and then, so, and so Sally did, Ride did, I'm sorry did she leak the report or did she write the report she leaked it because she still worked at NASA at this time right and right this, and, and this part of it didn't come out till after she died a few years ago right right um she got a hold of this report that NASA kind of knew about the O-rings beforehand. And she kind of just gave it to General Coutinho, uh-huh. who, during the commission, started, like, kind of directing things toward that, towards, uh, um... I see. Pulling that up and getting Feynman to kind of, um, investigate that further. Sure. Um, a little bit about Feynman himself... Um, he, as I said, he was a Nobel-winning physicist. Uh, uh, he'd been born in 1918 in New York City. Okay. He got a PhD from Princeton in 1942 and immediately went to go work for the Manhattan Project. 
So he was super smart and clearly handpicked by the government. Yes. Um, he developed breakthrough theories in quantum physics, uh, which led to his being awarded the Nobel Physics Prize in 1965. Smarty pants. Oh, yes. This this whole this whole mission and everything about it is full of people who are clearly extremely smart and know exactly what mm-hmm. they're talking about and have valid concerns, and a bunch of politicians and paper pushers and people with pressure above mm-hmm. them telling them, don't worry about it, just keep going. Yeah. Wow. Uh, during a televised portion of a commission session, uh, Feynman demonstrated live on national television, that the O-ring material became stiff at low temperatures, losing its effectiveness. Basically, had a bit of the O-ring, showed like, hey, this is pliable, stuck it in a in a glass of ice-cold water, let it sit for a bit, and then showed, hey, this is brittle. He's like, here's your tiny science experiment. Live on national television. So, like, now the whole country is seeing, oh. That seems questionable. Yeah, that, that seems like a problem. Yeah. So th- that put a lot of pressure on the commission to really, you know... Focus in uh, on that. Yes. And figure out why this was allowed to keep moving forward. Yeah, the commission report on June 6th blamed the accident on the O-ring failure mm-hmm. and on a NASA culture that prioritized success over safety. <sighs> yes. Yeah, and you can definitely see the um, decrease in popularity of NASA almost immediately yeah. happening after that. Not yeah. only were they decreasing the decrease in popularity, they had less funding. It was like a whole downhill. Ride. Yeah, the only real major accident that NASA had suffered beforehand for before this was the Apollo One fire in 1967. Right. And, yeah, there was a lot of questions asked, but, like, we're still in the midst of the space race, still going to the moon, so there's still a great deal of public confidence in NASA at at that point. Right. This is the first time that NASA's really um, public confidence really takes a hit. Right, right. So, yeah. Um, Alan McDonald's testimony to the commission helped... Start over. Just start yeah. over with Alan McDonald. Alan McDonald's testimony to the commission helped shed light on NASA's role in pressuring Thiokol to approve the launch. Mm-hmm. And, and for and his reward for his whistleblowing, uh, McDonald was de- was demoted at his position at Thiokol. Wow. Until public outcry and congressional intervention forced Thiokol to reverse their decision. <laughs> Congress actually went to Thiokol and was like, we'll stop giving you federal contracts uh, unless you put this guy back in his original position. Which, of course, everybody knows is definitely the best way to get back in good graces. Like, I know that that guy probably got his position back, but you know for sure that he did not get... <laughs> he didn't get respect back. Well, uh, he was promoted to vice president of engineering at Thiokol and led the redesign of the SRBs. Oh, well, hey. So... Maybe it did... Maybe it did work and, and out the thing for him. I took from that is like, wow, Congress can do the right thing. <laughs> That, I, don't that, count on it. Just don't count just, on it. <laughs> once in a blue moon, but it's like, wow, that, that is... I'm unfamiliar with uh, that sort of thing. It, it just... Yeah, so... Interesting. You, you wouldn't see that happen nowadays. No, no, they definitely not. Congress would never threaten a private company like that. No. No. Especially not... Because now we're almost beholden to contractors yes. at this point. Yes. And it's like, if a contractor dips out, we're like, uh, well... They're the only ones who can make that thing, so mm-hmm. guess we're out of luck. Yep. Yikes. Yeah. <sighs> but yeah, um, 
Uh, he was, as I mentioned, he led the redesign of SRBs, and the new SRBs were tested and approved by 1988, so in time for the return to launch for the shuttle, uh, and flew on the shuttle program until the end of the program in 2011. Okay. So they lasted a good, uh, good Almost long 30 while. years, yeah. yeah. Um, McDonald retired from Thiokol in 2001 and became a public speaker. Okay. Uh, kind of promoting, like, hey, promoting, like, whistleblowing and that type of thing. Uh, mm-hmm. Like, hey, if you see something going wrong... Say something. Say something, say something. Especially when people's lives are at risk. Yeah. Um, and he actually died uh, in March of 2021. Oh, okay. So not that long ago. Less than a year ago at the, record- at the time of recording of this. Jeez, wow, okay. Yeah. Um, Richard Feynman himself, uh, he had been in, in declining health by the time of the investigation and died in February 1988, so not mm. too long afterwards. Uh, and his testimony is really like, uh, or his um, role in the commission was really what kind of pushed it to um, to the conclusions that it came to. Okay. Um, Challenger itself was replaced by the Endeavor, which began flights in 1992. So a while. Yeah. It took several years. Yeah. Uh, the shuttle program resumed in 1988 and flew until 2011. Wow. Uh, NASA did make changes after the accident, but culture was cited again after the Columbia accident in 2003. Right. Uh, and Lawrence Malloy himself... Retired from NASA in July 1986. Okay. So, a month after that report came out. Yeah. He was like, I'm out. Yeah. Uh, since the accident, he's still alive today, as of the time of this recording, which is, again, I think a first for this show. Yeah. Uh, and since the a- and, uh, another first, uh, since the accident, he's kept a low profile and has expressed regret for his role in the disaster. Jeez. Which, which again, is something we haven't really come across yet. Our F for Upper actually expressing regret yeah. for his F-up. I mean... Or at, least, or at least that we have recorded, or that we know of. I'm sure... Yeah. I'm sure Emperor Maurice really regretted his actions when he saw his children being slaughtered in front of him. Yeah. But we don't... Yeah. We don't know that. We don't have a record of yeah. that. Yeah. So it's like, it, it's kind of... The show can kind of go into dark places sometimes and, get, and be a little depressing at points, but um, it's... it's just, I don't want to say heartwarming or... It's 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 good to see that someone has actually looked at his actions and be like, I really made a mistake. I yeah. really effed up. Yeah. Uh, which is something that is becoming all too rare yeah. as time goes on. For sure. They like so many people would rather just would rather die. Um, like 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 like, to, like going to their grave saying, "Well, no, I did the right thing." Right. No matter how horrible it was, yeah. Instead of saying, "Oh no, I, I did the adult thing to do and say, hey, I made a mistake.'" Yeah. So. Oh, yeah. Mm. It's, uh, one. I just saw this thing on Reddit one time, which I know that this is like Reddit is obviously not empirical data, but um, it was basically like, what was the time when you saw somebody's reaction change the fastest? And it was somebody who worked at the school that Chris McAuliffe uh, taught at. And so he was there watching when everybody was watching the... Mm-hmm. Because this was a huge thing for oh, yeah. the school that she taught at. Like, all of the kids were in the assembly room. Everybody was watching. They had a bunch of TVs up. Like, everybody was super excited about this. And so he said that uh, when the when the Challenger exploded... Like, all of the kids that she taught were watching, 
and like seeing their expressions of like wonder and amazement turn to like terror because they didn't know what was happening. And of course, the teachers are really upset yeah. and the staff is really upset because they do know what's happening. And the kids are like, they, he was like, they're just turned from awe to like complete abject terror. These kids were just completely scarred. There's, um, of course, her parents were at the launch, and yeah. there's footage from then of like you know, of the of. Right. This was this yeah. was a widely televised yeah. launch. I mean, even more so than other ones because this was the the outreach for NASA to reach the common person. Mm-hmm. Krista McAuliffe was was a teacher. She wasn't an engineer or a scientist or mm-hmm. somebody. Because in all previous launches, it had for the most part been folks that would have been qualified to become an astronaut. Yeah, like scientists or military personnel. Or engineers, what have you. Well, Chris McAuliffe, she was not any of those things. She was a teacher. I mean, educated, but not a, you know, not an engineer or scientist or a military pilot even. I mean, she wasn't a pilot. She was a teacher. Uh, The every person. So this was like really, really widely uh, televised. And Mm -hmm. then... So all the news media is there. Her parents are there. Like it was not your run of the mill shuttle launch. No, it was so. like a, a press frenzy, and then to have something happen like that so publicly, yep. um, while everybody's watching, the entire world was watching more so than any of the other launches, and that happened. It's like even, uh, more, than the, even more than the moon landing. Do we know that? Was there more people watching that than the moon landing? I, you know, I, I don't know. I didn't look up those statistics. Uh, probably more watching the moon landing, because it was, I, I mean, it was a definitely a first, whereas this was, like, pretty far along in the shuttle program. Like, they'd been launching for five years, nearly five years at this point. And, yeah, it's a special event, but, yeah, prob- probably not. Um, I think something like a billion people watched the moon landing, so I doubt there were that many people Holy watching crap. this. There was six six hundred fifty million people worldwide watched the moon landing. Hmm. Fifty three million U.S. households turned in to watch uh, the moon landing. So, so um, probably less. Yeah, the, watching this. You think less? There are more TVs though by nineteen eighty three. Yeah, but this. Probably, yeah, there was a lot of public interest in this, but compared to the moon landing... Hmm. That's fair. Yeah. I'm not seeing any data on that. Yeah, I, I don't... I'm curious if they even have data for it. Steve but, says that yeah, there's... It says, relatively, it says relatively few people actually saw the Challenger disaster unfold on live television. Yeah. Wow, so okay. Probably not many people actually yeah. watched it. Yeah. Okay. Um... Yeah, that's pretty much all I got. Um, wow. Sources I used for this. Uh, Wheels Stop, The Tragedies and Triumphs of the Space Shuttle Program, 1986-2011 to 2011 by Rick Houston and Jerry Ross. Space Shuttle Developing an Icon, 1972-2013 by Dennis Jenkins. What Do You Care What Other People Think? Further Adventures of a Curious Character, which is about Richard Feynman, mm-hmm. uh, by Ralph Lighton. And uh, Truth, Lies, and the O-Ring, or Truth Lies in O-Ring, Inside the Space Shuttle Challenger Disaster, by Alan McDonald himself. Wow. And James Hansen from Jeez. 2009. So. Well, final thoughts. Uh, listen to your engineers. Engineers yeah. never stop 
doing the right thing and speaking up when you see something. Because, I mean, imagine in this case, worst case scenario, they said, hey, this O-ring is bad. It's going to fail. You did your part. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's going to feel like crap when the thing that you told them is going to happen happens. But at least you said it. And you weren't the one to, you know, just keep carrying on. Yeah, it's better for you to speak up and, you know, have relay the information. Like, do what you can to stop it. Because even if it happens, it's like, well, I I did what I could. Yeah. As opposed to not speaking up and it's still happening and thinking for the rest of your life. Well, if I had spoken out, this might not have happened. Yeah, definitely. Imagine having to live with yourself like that. Well, in Lawrence Malloy's, I had to live with it for 35 years, and he regrets it. That would be tough. Yeah. Um, there's a good documentary on Netflix about this. I don't remember what it's called. But they interviewed him for it, and you can kind of see, like, he's he, re- he generally regrets it. So it's not like him just saying, oh, I regret this. Yeah. No, like, he, you can kind of see, you can pretty much see it. Um, in terms of aftermath... The people who were on the space shuttle were. Did any of them, like their families, sue on beha- on their behalf for wrongful death? Uh, I'm. I didn't look into the information like that, okay. um, but I'm sure they did. Okay. Um, I wasn't well, sure if there was any ever anything that happened, like considering it was clearly the fault of. <laughs> if I remember correctly, I think actually I did read something where maybe not the families did, but the government. Oh, because I think Thiokol had a had a clause in its contract where they would be liable for something like this if the problem was with the SRB. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, I think they did pay that, and I'm sure that the families got something. Mm. Uh, but I, I don't. I, I didn't look too far. I didn't go down that rabbit hole because mm. I, I wasn't. Yeah. It's really entirely relevant to this, but sure. Um, to be honest, I'm sure NASA probably has a a release form that you have to sign to become an astronaut. It Lord wouldn't shock. Wouldn't shock me. Yeah. Wouldn't shock me. But um, so yeah. So that's it. Yeah. Uh, what are we going to talk about next time? Uh, something more cheerful. Um, Thank goodness. All of our episodes up to this point, or at least most of them, have involved some sort of death toll. So we're going to be talking about something that does not have a death toll at all. Um, except maybe angry people yelling into a phone somewhere, maybe. But <laughs> that, that's a possibility. But uh, yeah, so um, we're going to be talking about why you should always follow things through to the end. Please don't forget to check out our sister projects, or mostly my sister projects, uh, the YouTube show, The Drunken Pond, which is produced by myself and hosted by our co-producer, Steve, on this podcast, um, where we drink beer and play board games. It's a great time. Uh, Attack of the Final Girls, which is a horror review podcast, uh, which is co-hosted by myself and my lovely pod wife, Juliet. Uh, Three Minute Movies, which is a YouTube channel where I attempt to summarize and spoil movies in three minutes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our show so we can stay on the charts. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram at WeEft Up. I'm Teresa. And I'm Cody. And this is WeEft Up. Up.